44 through 46, and looking specifically at Luke's narrative and story of Jesus' death. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not be so far away from this. That you would draw it close to us now. That we would see our role in this grand narrative. That we would see our place. And that we would see your Son. And what He did for us on the cross. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, talking about grand narratives, our family um, celebrates a grand narrative. We try to once a year. It consists of a few nights, and uh, it's usually in the living room, and uh, we dim the lights. It's dark. It's a special night. Um, it's a little solemn at times as uh, we begin it. It takes about a couple hours on each night. Um, I don't think Claire and Caroline are quite ready yet for it, uh, but uh, we think that Ellie and Morgan are, and uh And so it starts with this. It says, A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) What is he doing? (laughs) You might think I'm bringing triviality into something very solemn, but I want to make an illustration and a point here. As you open Star Wars, it is a grand narrative, isn't it? It's a cosmic battle between the Empire and the Rebellion. And you're entered into that right away as you start Episode 4, right? The real episodes, right? A New Hope. But then quickly it goes from this cosmic battle to this remote planet, Tatooine, right? And then we are brought on another character, this character of Luke Skywalker who whines a lot, that just wants to go to get power converters, who in Obi-Wan says, you know, you need to be involved in this epic battle that's happening. He says, no, how can I be involved in something so grand? I've got to care about Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. I can't go traveling around the galaxy saving a princess. How am I involved at all in this grand narrative? Well, we do the same, don't we? We dim the lights, right? We have this once-a-year celebration where we're drawn into this grand narrative. But I think many times we might say the same as Luke. And that happened 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. That happened to this guy, this historical figure, Jesus. How does his death affect me? 
how am I drawn into this story? Am I even involved in this? And then, good pastors, what they do on Good Friday, I, I think it's kind of two approaches. And I don't think they're bad. I just think two approaches that I've heard over, over the years is to draw you into the story, to draw you into being there is, one, I think, kind of the emotional response of the crucifixion. And that, it's very real. Whether you've watched The Passion of the Christ or... Maybe you've been to a Good Friday service where they actually do, you know, a guy coming up with a cross and they nail the nails. There's screaming. There's all those things. And it is graphic. The Roman execution was hideous. Was horrible. Jesus went through whipping and mocking. A crown of thorns. Carrying the cross. Nails in his hands and his feet. And dying by probably not being able to breathe. Horrible. I could bring you in that way. In Israel, it's, it's an approach. I could also bring you in cerebrally, you know. That this is something theologically that we're involved in. That here is the God of the universe, come down to earth. And what did we do as humans to this perfect man? We hung him upon a cross. We killed him. We are all representatives of that. Whether it's what we call penal substitution, reconciliation, ransom theory, all those nice theological terms, which are good to use and things we can say. But this is what I love about the Gospels. You know, there isn't really very vivid descriptions of the actual crucifixion. They share some, but it's not the vivid things that we think about the Passion of Christ that's described in the Gospels. And many times the pictures we do get are good. It's from history and what we've read about what the Romans used to do. And we bring them up in days like this. And then also, we're not reading the epistles. We're not reading Paul or Peter about the theological implications of the cross. But instead, when we read the Gospels, we read about characters. People in the story and how the characters respond and react to what is happening around them. From Jesus' family to the guards to the soldiers to the disciples to Herod to the chief priests. But there's one character I want to center on tonight. And it's one that Luke draws out quite extensively. And it's this character of Pontius Pilate. And the reason I want to draw him out tonight is this. Because he did know the realities of the crucifixion, didn't he? <laughs> as the Roman governor, as the 
person responsible of this area, Judea, of Israel, put in charge by the Romans, he knew what crucifixion was about. And second, he knew what it meant to have responsibility over those that were crucified, to put them there. But in the midst of knowing what crucifixion was about, and having responsibility for what the crucifixion was, or putting people in that place, he still tried to remove himself from the situation, especially the situation about Jesus. Pontius Pilate speaks a lot to how we respond to the cross. And looking at him, we can see ways that we also respond to seeing what happens to Jesus. As much as he was there, as much as he was the one responsible and finally did the final stroke to say Jesus would have to be put on the cross, he still tried to remove himself from the situation. He still tried to say, I want to be far away from what is happening. But as much as he tried, he couldn't. So when we read the, the story accounts and the Gospels of what happens to Jesus at the end, and specifically what Pontius Pilate does, we see four ways that Pilate tries to get out of this responsibility or this narrative. First, the chief priests and the Sadducees bring Jesus to Pilate and say, we need, you need to crucify him. You need to put him upon the cross. Look what he has done. So Pontius Pilate hears the case and gathers the evidence. And he says, uh, no, no, no. Uh, there's not enough here. I'm going to pass it off. Take him to Herod. Take him to your ruler. See what Herod says. And then Herod mocks Jesus, tries him. And then Herod returns him back to Pilate, saying, oh, no, I don't want to do this. So back on to Pilate. So now he talks to the crowd. What if I punish him and then I release him? Kind of a half-hearted compromise. And they say, no, 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 no. You can't do that. Then in his thinking, he said, oh, I know what I can do. This is your Passover. This is your feast. You know what we Romans want to do for you? We want to appease you Jews on the feast days. What if I release a criminal like Jesus now on your feast days? And I will pardon him because this is your celebration. And the people say, no, no, don't release Jesus. Instead, release the insurrectionist, the murderer. Barabbas, knowing he's caught, knowing there's no way to go, Pontius Pilate washes his hands and says, I am innocent of this. Take him. Crucify him. 
Well, what are the implications for us? Are we Pontius Pilate? Are we in that story? Are we that character? First of all, this is what happens to Pontius Pilate. A king versus the king of kings. And here, what Pilate sees is, here is a king that I know is innocent, that I know is good. But if I have to give up my power to this king... I will not. I think it goes back to the first sin. The first sin that Satan told us and told to to Eve and told to Adam in the garden. You can be like God. (laughs) You can be your own ruler. You can be your own king. And here Pilate says, I know what is right. Even though he is innocent, I believe I can be my own king. I can have my own power. And if anyone is going to challenge that, even to the point where I have to crucify him for it, so be it. Can you? (laughs) Can I compare your sin to that of Pontius Pilate? Oh, come on. Really? My lust? My lying? My control? My coveting? I'm not crucifying Jesus. How can you compare that to crucifying Him? I like it to take it to the furthest extent. If it really came down to it, where you had to choose between what you wanted to do and what God has called you to do to be in submission to Him, which one would you do? Are you your king? Or is Christ the king? And if it even came down to the extent where you need to depose Jesus from His place, as king, so that you can still have your control. You can still have your way. You can still control your life. You would do it. And quickly, our name becomes Pilate. Don't believe me? Well, let me go through the four things of Pilate and then apply it to you. Number one, let Herod make the decision. Let him do it. I'll pass it on to him. And many of us, many friends that we know, might say the same thing about this Jesus crucified. I don't need to make a decision of whether he's the king or not. I can just stay where I'm at. I can just continue to live my life the way it is. Let other people make the decision whether he's king or not. Let other people decide whether he is God. I don't need to make that decision. And maybe there's issues in your own life that's tugging upon you. 
Things where you say there's in conflict, I just continue to live this way. And God might be telling me, I need to live a different way. I don't need to wrestle with these things. I don't need to give them to God. I know I might stumble into these things time and time again, but really, I can't let God have control over these things. Just, I don't need to make a decision about these wrestles in my life. I know, just punish Jesus and then release him. That's what you can do. There's a good compromise. Punish him and then I'll just release him. This is what I call the I'll throw you a bone, God, and in return you give me what I need. I won't call Jesus king. I'll punish him for you. And I'll release him in the same way, you know, I'll do some things that you ask me to do. But if it really comes down to calling you king, to submitting to you, uh, I don't know about that. You can have Sunday morning, but you can't have more than that. Then... There's what I call the loophole of Barabbas. Okay, oh, here's a suggestion. I will pardon them. Here's a way I can get around having to call Christ the king. I will pardon him. And these are many loopholes that we might fall in ourselves. I'll be moral. I'll look good. I'll follow along with the things I have to do in this area where I have to live by the Judeo-Christian ethic. I'll do what you ask me to do. But then it might catch up to you. The motivation for doing good runs out. Because you start to realize even doing these good things, it doesn't result in what you really want. And God keeps on calling to you, saying, am I your king or are you your king? And lastly, we protest our innocence. Yeah, Jesus died upon the cross, but I'm not involved in that. That's that person that put him there. That's my neighbor who continues not to do this or that. That's my brother or sister that continues to fall into sin over and over again. That's my spouse who just can't get it right. I'm innocent. There is one person that did get it right, isn't there, in Luke? I would say the first person that got it right after Jesus' death. And here in Luke, we see this person right after the reading. In verse 47, it says this. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, Certainly this man was Innocent. 
Do you see that he got it? Didn't he? That man did not deserve to be up there. That man lived a perfect life. I didn't. None of us did. The centurion got it. Many of my ideas tonight don't come from myself. They come from John Stott, a great book called The Cross of Christ. And one thing that John says at the end of this, this chapter, he says, I used to object over and over again when people said that Christ died. I said, no, he didn't die. He was killed. But then I started to realize something. That Christ, yes, he was killed. But he also died in this. That he consecrated his whole life. His whole ministry. His whole time on this earth. To knowing that he was going to die for us. He didn't die as a martyr. He died willingly for us. A famous author says this, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Nor the Jews for envy. But the Father for love. You see, the indelible message of the cross is not the scandal of our sin taking Jesus to the cross. No, the indelible message of the cross is this. It is the amazing grace that Christ went willingly to the cross for us. Innocent. While we were the ones that were guilty. That is the good news. That is the message of the gospel. That our God would do it for sinners, willingly for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us realize that we are in this story. We are ones that say, oh, I'm innocent. I washed my hands of what happened on this night. But God, pierce our hearts to know that we are not. That our sin separates us from you. And it deserves death. But instead of giving us eternal separation, you have given us life eternal. Through sending your Son to die for us. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, It is Finished. Heart the voice of love and mercy sounds aloud from Calvary. See it when the rocks of thunder shake the earth and 
Hallelujah, hallelujah, glory to 